You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're all safe and well, and you're all very welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Masterclass Series. This is the sixth session we've run in this series to date since we kicked off in Parky Cueve in Cork last October. And at all times, we had intended to cover redundancy as part of the overall masterclass curriculum. The way we've approached this today is, given we're in the COVID-19 situation, it made sense to review the content and build in some of the COVID-19 unique issues that are coming up in redundancy practice and procedure. And the way we have approached the masterclass sessions overall is Rather than just focusing on the legal principles or the particular legislation relating to the topic we're talking about, we're also taking the opportunity to look at some of the key trends that are coming up for employers in dealing with these issues. More importantly, some of the pitfalls that we see employers falling into. So we can talk about how to avoid them and how to address them if you do find yourself in that situation. And to assist me in today's discussion, I've asked three of the other members of the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group to join me. First of all, we have Russell Rochford, one of the five partners in the Employment Pensions and Benefits Group. We have Susan Doris Avando, a senior associate in our practice, and also Denise Moran in the group. And what we're going to cover over the next 45 minutes, on the next slide you'll see the agenda that we have in mind. And what we're going to cover starting off is the temporary wage subsidy scheme that you'll all have been reading about. And I have a few questions for Denise in relation to that. I'm then going to talk to Susan about some of the cost-cutting measures that we've seen employers implementing over the past number of weeks, in particular, some of the issues, some of the trends that have been coming up. I'll take you through some slides in relation to redundancies, both individual and collective, as well as some of the, the common mistakes that we see employers falling into, and also some growing trends in relation to steps that employers are implementing that they don't actually have to, that are actually making these procedures more time-consuming and complex for them. I always think it's important these days to add in something positive. So Russell is going to talk to us about the future. Russell is going to bring us through some of the practical steps that employers are already looking at in terms of the return to work. And in a completely unrelated note, one of my daughters was telling me this morning she had a dream last night about how much fun it was going to be when she got back to school when all of this was over. So I'm hoping Russell can give us that kind of sentiment to finish today. But before we get to Russell, Let's move on to Denise and we'll have a look at the wage subsidy scheme. So Denise, maybe the best place for us to start here is just tell us a little bit about the scheme itself. Sure. So the um, the COVID-19 temporary wage subsidy scheme was introduced by the Irish government as part of its phase response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was introduced to provide financial support to employers who had been significantly impacted by the disruption caused by COVID. And the aim of the scheme really is to maintain that employment relationship between employers and employees for the duration of the pandemic, um, or at least for the 12 weeks that it was scheduled to last for, which is from the 26th of March. So that brings up until about the 18th of June, but as we know, the impact will likely last well beyond that date from an economic sense. Um, The client queries that we are seeing um, really center upon the eligibility of the scheme. 
it's based on self-assessment principles. Um, so that definitely is a key focus for clients. It's also in respect of the proofs that they have to present, that they will have to present to revenue if and when requested. And lastly, I suppose the key consideration for employers as well is in respect of the fact that employers' names will be published on the scheme, um, on, sorry, on the, on the Irish Revenue website who mm. avail and that will likely get significant media coverage when it is published and indeed we're already seeing um, media scrutiny in regards to eligibility both in the UK and Ireland. And if we can just drill into that a little bit more for a moment Denise, how does an employer go about assessing its eligibility for the scheme? Yeah, so the, the scheme is underpinned by the emergency measures in the Public Interest COVID-19 Act 2020, which sets out that for an employer to be eligible for the scheme, it needs to demonstrate the satisfaction of the Irish revenue that it has at least a 25% decline in turnover or in customer orders for the period of the 14th of March, the 30th of June. Now we've seen them in clients already, you know, raising in queries in that respect, where especially where they have had an impact, not so much for that particular Q2 period, but more towards the end of it, where the impact is actually really going to be seen um, in the May and June. And it's really just assisting clients on grappling with how they do assess their eligibility for the scheme. In addition to what's laid out in statute, we also have seen that the Irish Revenue have said that their key focus will be on the significant negative economic disruption caused by COVID. And they look at um, an employer's inability to pay normal wages and outgoings. In instances where there is there where the company is not in a position to show um, or incapable really of showing that it can that it will have a decline of 25% in turnover customer order, it can rely on this alternative reasonable basis. But this will be only for employers, as I said, that cannot actually is is not capable of relying on those tests. And that would probably arise for companies, for example, like a large engineering company where it has maybe two or three large scale projects in the year and the significant negative economic disruption, which is its feeling, is not so much in the decline in orders at the decline in turnover, but in a different in a different way. And they can rely on that basis. But revenue guidance should be sought if, if you are seeking to rely on that. It'll be interesting to see how, how that particular one pans out. And I can imagine for a lot of clients, one of the, the practical questions they have is, what documentation do I actually need to have in place? What are the proofs I need? And, and do I need to submit them to revenue now? So maybe we could talk about that for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that that definitely is one of the, the client queries that we're seeing as well. And the bottom line is that you need to have clear, cogent, documentary evidence that absolutely demonstrates the revenue that you are eligible for the scheme and that you're relying on this particular evidence to self-assess as being eligible. The Irish Revenue have not given an exhaustive list of these proofs and they haven't even delineated any particular documentation that they require, but they have given an illustrative list which clients are relying on such as, you know, a review or comparison between Q1 of this year's customer orders versus Q2 of this year's customer orders or Q2 turnover of this year compared to last year. And that's the kind of proof that the employers will be relying on and giving to the revenue. In terms of when we need to give it, it'll be when requested by revenue. Our understanding that that will probably happen at the conclusion of the scheme. But our advice is employers just need to be ready to provide this as and when it's required by, by the revenue and, and really from the date of application. Okay, that's useful. So there is some practical guidance in the revenue documentation already around the type of 
uh, proofs and evidence they will be looking for when it comes to that stage. And we know there were some attempts made or introduced in recent weeks to make the scheme a little bit more easy to follow for employers and there were some changes introduced last week. Maybe you could bring us through some of the, the key changes there. Yeah, absolutely. So the key revisions that were announced by the, the government have, have actually, in effect, really significantly increased the complexity of the scheme. The, the reason that they were introduced was to address anomalies that had presented, particularly for employees in the lower wage brackets, where it was financially better off for them to actually avail of the pandemic unemployment payment at the flat rate of 350. So that's the reason that the, the subsidies were revised. These will be applicable from the 4th of May. We've set out in, in a slide deck that will be circulated to all attendees following the webinar exactly what the revisions have been. But clients have found the following step process very useful and I thought that would be important for us to go through and useful for attendees to see. So step one really for, for employers who are availing of the scheme is to assess each employee's average net weekly pay for the January and February period and that's just step one. Step two then is to see okay of all these employees who are eligible what wage cohort or what wage bracket do they fall into in order to determine what subsidy is available. So for example if your employees are on less than 412 euro they have an increased subsidy of up to 85% of their net weekly pay. Where the next step then is is where you have employees who are earning in excess of 38,000 up until 76,000, a tiered approach now applies for these particular employees. And that tiered approach is based on the gross amount paid by the employer. So what you need to do is you need to assess what the current employer payments are, including any top-ups, and then you will determine what subsidy is available. And the effect of this has been that employers who answered that government's call and the national call to top-up employee wages are now, from the 4th of May, going to actually receive less of a subsidy than they had. And this was this was a surprise, um, surprise announcement by the government. And indeed, it, it, it is likely going to have financially, I suppose, it's financially penalizing almost employers who did actually commit to topping up wages. Fourth step then is just having a look at those employers who have had a wage cut in January and February. They were receiving in excess of 76,000, but because of a wage subsidy, they're now receiving less than 76,000. They are now eligible for the scheme. And, and step three then needs to be done again. Look to see what tiered approach and what subsidy is available now. And lastly, the subsidy is tapering required. And this just really means so that the gross payment paid by the employer plus the subsidy doesn't leave the employee better off and where it does, the subsidy will be tapered. And that step process should really assist employers in, in tackling the revisions that were made. Okay, thanks for that, Denise. I know from discussions with you in relation to this and other client queries, we could easily spend an hour talking about this alone but we're definitely not going to do that. So it's useful you've set out all of the detail in the, the larger slide deck, which we will share afterwards. But perhaps I'm hoping we'll have a little bit of time at the end to go into a couple more questions on that. Uh, and I have one or two other questions that I'd like to talk to you at that point on. For example, just to see, have these changes made the scheme a little bit more accessible for employers? Are we seeing more employers engaging in it? So thanks for that, Denise. Susan, can I turn to you now just to talk about some of the the cost-cutting measures that we're already seeing employers uh, implementing over the last four or five weeks. And what was interesting about this crisis was how quickly employers started to react. I suppose each, each crisis is different in its own way and what causes it and how employers react. But we're already dealing with queries on this. But 
maybe the first question I'd like to ask you is, how are employers actually going about implementing pay cuts? What are the risks involved? What type of trends are out there in the market at the moment? Thank you, Brian. And hello, everyone. Yeah, so how we, how an employer implements a salary reduction. Salary reduction obviously constitutes a material change to the employment contract. So employee consent must be obtained in advance. And you will be aware there are two ways of obtaining consent, either express or implied. Express is generally recognised as safer from a legal perspective. Uh, there's a need to engage in some sort of consultation process in order to gain the consent. And then you would record the written consent on a personnel file. Implied consent has a heightened risk because you're relying on the employees not objecting. And the risks in terms of legal proceedings seeking to obtain implied consent are these. So unlawful deduction of wages, a breach of the Payment of Wages Act, where employees can obtain up to twice uh, the deduction. Secondly, breach of contract proceedings, little less attractive for employees because they have to uh, incur some legal costs in bringing the claim. They could claim constructive dismissal, but in the current circumstances where employees are doing everything to retain jobs or retain their jobs, perhaps unlikely because obviously they would need to resign to make such a claim. And then there is obviously the, the prospect of trade dispute claims, but employers are less concerned perhaps about those because the recommendations are unbinding unless there is a, a collective agreement, perhaps states otherwise. But the key thing here, I think you're right, Brian, to focus, focus on and might be of help to our clients is what are the trends? What are we seeing? Clients have been asking for advice on pay deductions way back in March. In fact, the first day of the school closures back on the 13th of March, we have been asked, that was our first instruction, in fact, about salary reductions, and we've been seeing them ever since. In terms of the amount, what we are seeing, I think you'll agree, Brian, is roughly a 10 to 30% deduction. Mostly, most clients are somewhere in the middle around 20%, although we are aware, obviously, in the market of 50% deductions as well. Interesting, we have seen tiered approaches. So, give an example, perhaps a 5% deduction for those earning under 50k, 10% for those 50 to 100k, and 15% perhaps to those earning over 100k. In terms of end dates, some employers prefer not giving an end date. And to make that more palatable, I guess, to employees, they are saying, look, we will review it. But at the moment, it's, you know, your contract is salary deduced. Others are having end dates, again, to make it more palatable for employees to know when, when that is. However, to manage expectations, the employers or our clients are saying that it will be reviewed. And obviously, that means going through the process of consent again at that stage. Interestingly, some uh, clients are committing to pay back the salary in, say, three months. So it is an effect in that case, an employee, a, loan, a loan from the employees to effectively keep uh, the business afloat in, in difficult times. You'll be aware that the WRC are not hearing claims at the moment. They are consulting um, on remote hearings, but it's likely, I think, that such remote hearings, at least initially, will be those with, without evidence, without witness evidence. So I guess for the moment in, say, that three-month period where pay is deduced and not being paid back, employees wouldn't be able to progress uh, with a claim. 
And so what are we seeing? What are we seeing? Are we seeing most employees going for express consent? Or are we seeing most, rather, employers going for express consent or implied consent? We are seeing largely express consent. Although, you know, there have been two or three clients that have done significant, I'd say, unilateral deductions effectively overnight. So I guess what factors are our clients looking at in terms of deciding, I guess, whether to go the express route or the implied route? And I thought about this. I thought about the number of factors that our clients you know, have been looking at. And the first is timing. If an employer doesn't have time, for example, if they need to make, say, a two million saving this quarter, they don't have the time to go through an express consent procedure and may prefer the implied consent route. Some take the view in going through the implied consent route that you know, problem employees will be problem employees, whether that is not giving express consent or bringing a claim if the employer goes the implied consent route. Other factors we've seen that are relevant are the level or the significant nature of a pay deduction. The more significant we see, the more employers tend to want the safety of an express consent route. Other factors are perhaps the period of the cut. If it is short and perhaps the employer is going to pay back the sum at a certain stage, it might be easier to get the express consent from the employees in in those situations. Um, Interestingly, we've looked at it from a sector approach as well, and the ease at which employees in those sectors would give express consent. And we are seeing that perhaps in the tech sector, where there is, you know, generally a quick turnover, maybe 18 months on average for employee there, we're seeing that there is that less loyalty perhaps to the employer, so less likely to give the express consent. Again, perhaps in the retail sector, the promotion prospects aren't as great as in other sectors, and again, less willing to give the consent, as opposed to, for for example, the financial sector or the professional, other professional services sectors where loyalty is a big thing. Um, and if they're asked to give express consent in these circumstances, they generally will give it. I think it's important to say, though, this you know, the pandemic, it's unprecedented, it's gravity in nature and the social buy-in. The social buy-in is a, is, is a key thing and it's a key thing in communications as well. It's a significant circumstance and all employees, all of us as a nation and globally are in it together. It's a, a real unprecedented public health issue and tying into that, employees we see are giving the express consent in those circumstances. And I think it's interesting drawing from our experience in the 2008 economic crisis. That was a little bit different because someone, you know, people did look to someone to blame. They did look to the banks. They did look to the property boom and express consent, albeit, you know, people did try to get it and and did in most circumstances. That's a little bit different because there's not that public buy-in. Indeed, at that stage in 2008, I was in Freshfields in London. I was on secondment to a US investment bank over there at that stage. And it seems to me that most employers at that stage were indeed asking for express consent and employees were giving it because, you know, the circumstances of not giving it were pretty drastic. Although the key focus there was collective redundancies on a rolling basis. I guess the nets of social insurance schemes that were that are available now weren't 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 available then. Also another lesson I guess to, to draw from the 2008, we obviously were around then, we we know what happened, we know the case law that generated but, but what I, I can say is that we didn't see a lot of litigation from an employment perspective arising at that stage. And again I think it's just you know employees were on board. They knew what the alternative was. If they didn't agree, they knew that, you know, redundancies were a real threat. Interestingly, on an Irish perspective, 
We have seen a few unpublished, two unpublished rights commissioner cases in arising from the economic crisis in 2008. And you'll be aware, obviously, for the Payment of Wages Act, the compensation is as is reasonable in all the circumstances. And in those two cases, we note that the rights commissioners decided not to give any compensation. They didn't think it was reasonable in the circumstances of an unprecedented economic situation. And although there were clear breaches for deduction of wages in the circumstances, they didn't think it was reasonable to pay any award. And I have seen an EIT case as well, albeit it was Obiter, uh, the case wasn't directly in point, where there was some sympathy for that argument. And obviously people are saying that this economic downturn is perhaps more significant than that. So it'll be interesting. I certainly I give a massive health warning on those cases. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see, I guess, where that jurisprudence, whether it yeah. will develop. And I think actually of all the risks you've outlined there on the screen, the payment of wages claim is probably the one that if an employee is inclined to challenge it, that's the way they'll go because it's the, the quickest and cheapest. Another topic, Susan, that I know is coming up for a lot of employers is just in regards to salary increases. What, what trends are we seeing there? Are employers getting into difficulty on, on not going ahead with them? Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, d- d- dealing with the black letter law first, mm. is a salary increase a contractual right? <clears throat> and, in, you know, in almost all cases, the only contractual right an employee has is a right to review And obviously, it's uh, absolutely prudent and proper to take into account the economic downturn. And what what I've seen and what we've all seen within the department is that in plans are generally putting increases on hold. There is an argument, obviously, that, you know, if you increase wages the same way, the same percentage, the same way in in a number of years, that it could be a custom and practice argument. But I think those would be rare. We're also seeing clients who have already communicated an increase for this year. And they're in the unfortunate position that in those sort of cases, that increase may have already become a contractual right. And then you're in the territory as before for salary deductions, if you don't want to give it, obviously, of getting express and implied consent. I think express consent would be a lot easier because it's not something that they had before and you're taking it away. It's something they're about to have and taking it away. So that, that's what we see in, re- in relation to pay increase. I think another thing it might be interesting will be obviously what, what happens bonus. Uh, obviously, case by case basis, we'll be looking at whether, you know, if there is discretion, whether discretion can be properly exercised by looking at the financial or the economic crisis and the financial circumstances of that mm. particular company. Obviously, the bonus round for most people hasn't started yet. So we'll keep an eye on that and keep track of, of developments there. But that might be the next, the next yeah. issue. So the the last question I just want to go through with you, Susan, is in relation to the accrual of annual leave. This is a point that has been coming up for a lot of clients and we're seeing different practices. So maybe you could just outline what the the issue is here and where we're seeing it go. And I guess for most employees, they're looking at the bright side and holiday hopefully in the second quarter. Uh, And I think most people have a degree of sympathy with that. But the um, concern is obviously from an employer perspective that employees will en masse just when you're trying to get out of the downturn and the crisis, employers believe on mass taking annual leave, perhaps at the latter part of 2020. So that we've been asked to look at, you know, what, how, how can we address that risk? And, you know, a question is, can an employer require an employee to take annual leave? And we've seen this a number of times. So the requirements are for an employer to require, two requirements need to be met. One, one month consultation with the employee or trade union and two, an important point is to regard the opportunities for rest and relaxation and the need for the employee to reconcile work with family commitment. So 
again untested but there is a real risk there that when certainly at the moment when employees are locked down and the stress of that some often with family responsibilities there, there could be a risk that that would be challenged but nonetheless it is a, it, it is something to address you know you could ask employees to take you know a few one day a week blah, 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 uh, as well the other thing we have seen is um, some employers are permitting employees to take accrued leave into the next year so you know negativing the risk of the everyone taking it the latter of 2020. They're flagging it now to employees that you will be allowed to take your leave into next year so they can plan ahead. Absolutely and incentivizing employees too Brian you know you get a little bit more holiday if you take in the next few months and also it, 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 some employees have already addressed have already taken their annual leave to address childcare issues so it isn't a problem I guess for those employees and also the last point I think I should raise though in relation to annual leave and health and safety obligations generally obviously the employer has a requirement to ensure a safe system of work and so far as reasonably practical to protect the, the health both mental and physical of, of employees. Um, the point that has come up, and we've discussed this with a number of clients, is that at this point in the annual leave year, most employees will have taken at least one, if not two weeks, annual leave between midterm break and Easter holidays and the likes. So usually in a situation where for the first time in many, many years, you will have a very significant number of employees who haven't taken annual leave yet. In addition, working day to day in the current environment is quite difficult for a lot of employees. They're working in challenging circumstances. So there is the risk of additional stress on employees. So employers are having to be increasingly conscious of this. And if we go back to the KEPAC case against um, KEPAC two or three years ago, where an employer was found to have breached the time legislation by not intervening in circumstances where they could see an employee was working excessive hours. And if you apply that logic now, employers are clearly on notice as the fact that employees may not have had much annual leave yet and have not had the opportunity for rest and and relaxation. So employers do need to be seen to be proactively engaging with employees so as to encourage that. And I think that's one of the key points coming out of this. And it is a difference between requiring employees to take annual leave for one reason, but at the same time encouraging employees to take annual leave for their own health and safety benefit. So I think that was really the last point Susan was going to cover in her section If I can move on then just to bring you through a couple of questions in relation to redundancy in practice and procedure. On the next slide, I've just set out some elements around the definition of redundancy. And I'm sure almost all of you have at some point in your careers heard employers as well as employees use the term redundancy very loosely, very generally, and more often than not incorrectly. And that it wouldn't be unusual to hear a client say something like, Well, Brian was a poor performer, so we made him redundant. And of course, that's not a genuine redundancy. It's a poor performance redundancy um, dismissal dressed up as a redundancy. And if the employer attempted to defend that before the WRC, it would most likely run into difficulty because the WRC, especially in redundancy cases, are always that little bit more suspicious that the employer isn't jumping upon it as a means of moving on a poor performer under the cloak of redundancy. So redundancy is a specific statutory concept that was introduced and is provided for under the Redundancy Payments Act going back to 1967. And in its essence, what happens is the role is no longer required. As a result of the role no longer being required, the employer no longer requires that employee, and then the employee's employment is terminated by reason of redundancy. And that's kind of looking at it in a a terms of a sequence as to where you get to. And this slide here sets out four of the elements of the statutory redundancy definition. 
And redundancy is a recognized fair reason for dismissal under the Unfair Dismissals Act. But in, in order for an employer to successfully defend a redundancy challenge under the Unfair Dismissals regime, they must be able to show two things. Firstly, that the, re- the redundancy itself is genuine and valid. And secondly, that the employer has followed a fair and reasonable process. Now, for any employer that is going through COVID-19 related redundancies, in most cases, there won't be too much difficulty around showing that the redundancy is valid and genuine. They will be able to show the business is suffering extreme difficulties and we needed to lay off or make redundant rather X number of employees. So there shouldn't be too much challenge there. But there's nothing at the moment that suggests employers can compromise or reduce the standards when it comes to how they implement a redundancy. So how you go about implementing a redundancy is now just as important as ever. And in our experience of defending redundancy claims, and I don't mean in the last few weeks coming out of this, because none of them have got that far yet, but I mean over the course of our collective careers, certainly during the financial crisis and right back to the dot-com boom and bust, the point is the same. If an employer hasn't followed the correct process, well, then they can lose on that point alone. And I think a lot of employers sometimes overlook that. So on the next slide, I've just teased out the difference between individual and collective redundancies. And for clients who are going through redundancies at the moment, or experiences, most of them are doing more than just two or three redundancies, they're looking at a large number. So the first question they need to clarify in their own plan is, are we looking at an individual or non-collective redundancy, or are we looking at what we call a collective or a statutory collective redundancy process? Let's just talk about the individual or the non-collective one, first of all. What we mean there is one where it doesn't meet the threshold for a collective redundancy and there's no set time period where you are implementing a non-collective redundancy process. There is a growing practice amongst clients, particularly the Irish branch of UK businesses or businesses that kind of have a large UK influence to follow a set 30-day time period, but actually that's not a requirement. So it's not a mistake in the sense of being a liability issue but it may be adding complication, time and cost to a process when you don't have to. And in our experience, most employers where they're implementing a small number of redundancies, provided that they're not unduly contentious or that there isn't a whole lot of complex selection issues involved, should be able to start and finish the redundancy process within two weeks. And we've certainly got through that in many previous cases. Irrespective of whether it's a collective or a non-collective process, you will still be required to go through a consultation process. And the consultation process, in a nutshell, boils down to the employer being seen to engage with the employee in the proposal to make their role redundant. And unless the employer can show that it did that and didn't predetermine the process, well, then the employer won't be able to defend that redundancy. And again, it is probably one of the most frequent rock employers perish on when it comes to the EAT and its day and now the WRC redundancy procedures. So it's, it's really important to get that bit right. If we move on to collective redundancies, that's a very specific set of circumstances. And this is a process, it's a very specific set of circumstances that arise where an employer makes a set number of employees redundant over a 30-day consecutive period. And I recap on the numbers now, they are all contained in the more detailed slideshow that Denise talked about. But the starting point of the threshold is where an employer makes 
five or more employees redundant where the employer ordinarily employs between 21 and 49 employees in the establishment. The second limb of the threshold is where the employer terminates 10 employees or more by reason of redundancy and where that employer ordinarily employs between 50 and 99 employees in the establishment. The third limb is if the employer terminates by reason of redundancy 10% of the employees where they ordinarily employ between 100 and 299 employees in the establishment. And then finally, for the very large employers, where they terminate 30 employees or more by reason of redundancy, where they ordinarily employ 300 or more employees in the establishment. And you'll have heard me refer to the establishment at each point along the way, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because that is critical in your planning. But if you trigger the collective redundancy process, there are certain key obligations that apply in addition. And probably the most immediate or practical one is that the employer must then engage in a 30-day consultation period with appointed employee representatives. Now, it doesn't mean you have to allow in a union if you've never done so, or you have to allow in the employee solicitors. The employee representatives come from the group of employees that are at risk of redundancy. And it doesn't mean you must meet them every day for 30 days, or indeed that you must talk to them for 30 days in the consultation process. It simply requires that the employer must initiate the consultation process 30 days before the first notice is issued. And that, again, is a critical point. The the trigger point here is the date when the notice is issued, not the date of dismissal, because sometimes they're not necessarily the same. And this was clarified in Junk and Kuhnel, a decision from the European Court of Justice back in 2006. The second main obligation is that the employer must notify the minister 30 days before the first notice is issued. And the idea here is that it will, going back to the directive behind this legislation, it may give the minister an opportunity to engage with the employer and hopefully intervene in the process and avoid the need to make those redundancies. Now, my experience is of running collective redundancy procedures, both at the moment, financial crisis, and again, back even in the dot-com boom and bust, that beyond the point of sending in the letter to the minister, that's probably the only interaction you will have with the department. It's very unusual for the department to engage with the employer. The only one I can think of where we were involved in within the group where the minister did engage was when, uh, and this was perhaps predictable enough in the circumstances, the employer was making a large number of employees redundant who were based in the minister's constituency and it was an election year coming up. So in hindsight, we probably should have seen that one coming. For the employer. I can also remember a case of Rory Quinn when he was the then minister flying out to the US to engage with senior management in digital when they were laying off a large number of employees in Galway and Clonmel at the time and that was probably the mid-90s. So yes it can happen but it's very unusual. So on the next slide I've just set out some of the issues that we typically see coming up for employers in terms of both pitfalls and common queries as well as perhaps missed opportunities. On the individual redundancy side, sometimes employers in a rush to get up and running, and we're seeing a lot of rushing at the moment, understandably, they don't take the time to actually look at the role they're looking at and see whether or not it's a standalone role or if it requires to be pooled. And as most of you will know in this area, a standalone redundancy is clearly the most straightforward to implement in that there's no messing around with selection criteria or selection matrices, etc. It's a lot more straightforward. And sometimes employers miss this. 
they assume that people are doing the same role instead of taking the time to actually maybe look at the job description, look at what functions they're performing right now to see can they comfortably separate them and say, well, Brian is actually in a standalone role, even if he might think he does the same job as Susan and Denise. Similarly, we see employers make the mistake of creating too large a pool for the redundancy employees. Just because a large number of employees all have the same title doesn't necessarily mean that they all do the same job and that they should be pooled. And I think employers should look at that before they actually create the pool. The next mistake we see, and this is probably the most common of all, is presenting the redundancy as fact. Going back to my earlier point, consultation is the bedrock of a valid redundancy defence, and the employer must be able to show that they engaged with the employee in relation to the proposal to make their role redundant. So the wrong way to go about this would be at the at-risk meeting from the outset to say to the employee, we have decided to make your role redundant, we want to talk to you about alternatives such as redeployment. Instead, the employer should be saying to the employee, we have decided we need to cut costs, we are proposing to make your role redundant as a consequence of this, and we want to talk to you about any alternative ideas that you have that might help us avoid the need for redundancy. So it's really just stepping back in that decision-making process one or two steps to give the employee the opportunity to engage before the decision is made. Now, I know a lot of employees are understandably cynical as to whether that's a waste of time. Indeed, a lot of employers feel that it often is unfair in the employee because it gives them false hope. And in practice, it often doesn't change the outcome. But the fact is, that is what the law requires employers to do. So employers must be able to show they've gone through that in order to defend it. The next issue I want to talk about here is, again, a growing trend that we see amongst employers, particularly those that have a UK parent. And that's of providing advance notice of the at-risk meeting. It's not a liability issue in terms of if you do it, it's not a mistake. It's just that it isn't required and it can make the process a lot more difficult for the employer because what we see here is two things. Either the employee now has four or five days advance notice of it, they're coming in with all of their arguments ready and it's making the process much more contentious from the outset. Alternatively, and in a practical sense, right now, this is even worse. The employee doesn't turn up at all and you get a sick cert in from a doctor in advance. And at the moment, it's impossible to even send that employee to the doctor to see if they're medically fit to engage in the redundancy process. So that might add three or four weeks to your redundancy process overall when it's an error that could easily be avoided. So unless that's built into your procedures or you do that as a matter of custom and practice, I wouldn't advise it. Likewise, the right to appeal. This is something which, again, is a growing trend. And it goes back to two cases that came out around the same time in the financial crisis, which suggested from the then EAT that employers are absolutely required to build in a right of appeal in the redundancy process. It's not a liability issue in that if you do it, it's not a mistake. In fact, you'll probably get brownie points from the WRC for doing it. But it's not a strict requirement in the legislation. So if you haven't done this before and you're prepared to take a risk on those two particular cases, given that there aren't a, number, a huge number of other cases that follow them, then I think it's something you should think about. Because in a practical sense, again, any employee who's faced with the choice of not appealing or appealing a redundancy decision, they're always going to appeal it. Because at a minimum, it'll get them at least another week's salary in the process. And if you're a large employer going through a large number of redundancies at the moment, 
that week or extra two weeks salary could be a very significant cost for you at a time when you just can't afford it. Moving on then to the collective redundancy bullet points I have here, here are some of the mistakes we see employers making. First of all, in regard to calculating the thresholds, a lot of employers will just stop and think, well, how many employees do I have today and where do I fit on the threshold? But actually, the process for calculating how many employees you have is based on the average number of employees you had each month for the last 12 months. So you could well have only 17 employees today, in which case you think you're below the lowest threshold. But if on average over the last 12 months you have 22, well, then you could be caught. And that's something you need to bear in mind. Likewise, when it comes to fixed-term contract employees, if you are terminating a fixed-term contract employee by reason of redundancy during a fixed-term contract, well, then day two would be considered a redundancy for the purpose of the calculation. And this can make the difference between something triggering the, the collective redundancy regime or not. The next point is more of a missed opportunity, and that's that a lot of employers aren't aware that the definition of establishment can be interpreted quite flexibly and favorably to assist the employer in deciding whether or not they come within the regime. Take, for example, a retail employer that has 500 employees in Ireland across a large store network. If it's looking at making 100 employees redundant, well then, on the large definition within the collective redundancy regime, that would trigger it. However, if the employer can show that because of the way they run each of the individual stores, that each individual one is its own establishment, and if each of those stores has less than 20 employees, well, then they'll actually be able to implement 100 redundancies without triggering any collective redundancy. And this is backed up in case law, both of which have gone the whole way to the ECJ, one against Bon Marsh in the 2000s. And then this issue was again reaffirmed in the Woolworths cases when they were being liquidated back in the last financial crisis. Equally, you can turn that on its head, actually. We advised an employer, a manufacturing employer a few years ago in regard to a collective redundancy process it was running. And it had four or 500 employees in its main manufacturing facility and it had 25 employees in its smaller manufacturing facility. It was closing down the smaller one, which of itself would have been a collective redundancy. But because they were able to show the manner in which they ran the financial reporting, the management structure, et cetera, between the two sites, that they were in essence the same establishment, then the much higher threshold applied. So it actually didn't trigger the collective redundancy process at all. So that point is always worth stopping and thinking about if you are trying to work out your numbers and whether or not you trigger these obligations. The next point I have here is a question we get quite a lot, and that is around staggering the redundancies so as to keep below the radar. And yes, technically you can do that. Uh, it can be done legitimately within the scope of the legislation. But in my experience, across any number of collective redundancies, I'm still not convinced it's worth it because the effort that goes into layering these redundancies, continuing to deal with employees who probably know that they're going to be made redundant and the ongoing cost of employing individuals who you no longer need, sometimes it's just not worth it for the employer. So if that's a question that you're getting from your finance director or your CEO, well, then I think these are the type of issues you'll be teasing out. A couple of last points here, how many consultation meetings should take place? And this is a question we see coming up from a lot of the tech clients. In the current crisis, most employers that are going through a collective redundancy process have also in parallel imposed a recruitment freeze. 
so there is no redeployment opportunities to talk about. Likewise, the clients are focused on whether or not there are selection issues. And in many cases, they're closing down entire lines of business or entire product lines. So if that's the case, there's no selection point. So in that regard, there isn't a whole lot to consult on. So in that scenario, it is feasible for an employer to be running a collective redundancy process with a minimum of three, maybe no more than four, collective consultation meetings with reps. And the last point, perhaps it's not showing up there in the slide that I just wanted to quickly run through was whether or not you can run a remote collective redundancy process in the current environment. We are already running five collective remote processes for employers that are in this situation. And clearly the law allows an employer to make redundancies. At the same time, because of the emergency regime in place, employers and employees aren't allowed outside the doorstep. So we have this conflict, and I think we have to start from the premise that while an employee will say the process is defective because I didn't have a face-to-face meeting with my employer, and the legislation clearly was drafted at a time when nobody ever envisaged remote working, let alone the scenario we find ourselves in, I think an employer would be in a reasonable position to say to WRC that while I accept it may be technically defective and not as it should have been, we did the best we could in the circumstances. We weren't allowed to do any more. And we believe that the employees' rights haven't been compromised. And looking at the ones we're doing at the moment, I do feel that the employer is going quite some way to really manage the employees' expectations and make sure they're getting as good an opportunity to consult as would otherwise be the case if we were face-to-face. So there are just some of the issues we see coming up in regard to redundancies. Russell, if I can pass over to you now just to talk about some of the return to work issues that, that we're dealing with. Hello everyone, thanks Brian. So I guess one of the, the bigger questions that we're getting from employers at the moment is why should they now start looking at returning the employees to the, the, the workplace? And you'll have seen last week the Taoiseach confirmed that the government will be announcing fairly shortly details of its plans to lift the COVID-19 restrictions. And the Taoiseach also urged employers to think about how they can get their businesses back up and running as the restrictions are lifted. And certainly what seems clear from listening to government officials and uh, medical experts is that there will be a phased transition to business as usual. And that could take a long number of months with things like social distancing uh, becoming the new normal both in society and business for the foreseeable future. This is obviously going to give rise to a, a myriad of different issues for employers particularly relating to how they reintegrate employees back into the workforce who've been working from home or who have been laid off. So it's therefore very important to start proactively planning now in relation to how you're going to be dealing with those issues um, so as to make the transition as smooth as possible or as smooth as it can be in the circumstances and also to reduce the risk of any, any unwanted issues like claims and things like that arising. Employers should be getting ready for now, Russell, from from the type of queries we've seen coming in. Yes, so I I think what I'd like to focus on is the, and just to sort of explain to the the attendees the sorts of measures and proactive planning that we've seen from our own clients um, who started that process already, but also what we can provide that we have learned uh, from the experienced employers in other countries like Germany and Italy and Spain, who are ahead of us here in Ireland in terms of dealing with the crisis. So I guess the starting point for everyone is going to be um, your health and safety obligations. That's obviously going to underpin quite a lot of, if not most of, what you will be doing when you're getting and and reintegrating employees back into the workplace. So as a first step and prior to bringing employees back uh, to the workplace, 
employers should be engaging ideally with the health and safety advisor, whether that be somebody who's in-house or whether you have to engage an external advisor to review your, your current health and safety practices to carry out an updated risk assessment and then also update the safety statement to ensure these are all adhering to uh, COVID-19 related precautions. And just incidentally on that, actually, there is some very, very good guidance that the HSA has issued for employers on its website, hsa.ie. So that's well worth uh, taking a look at. But one of the main things that we're seeing at the moment with employers in in terms of how they're preparing for the, the lifting of the restrictions is that in addition to things like risk assessments, they're also putting in place and devising detailed safety or return to work plans and procedures which are aimed at supporting employees to return to the workplace without uh, risk to their health or indeed risk to to the health of others. And, you know, that sort of detailed employer-specific plan, you know, should provide the clarity that employees will need on these important issues. It'll also help as well reassure employees who are really quite fearful about coming back into the workplace, that the employer is taking you know, very effective measures and steps to safeguard their health and safety. And I think as well, it's worth adding that these steps are the sorts of things as well that will help an employer to defend itself in the event that claims are brought. So that includes under the health and safety legislation where employers are required to take all reasonably practical steps to safeguard the health and safety of its staff. So that'll be an important part of that if it ever comes to it. Turning then to the issues, Brian, in terms of what we've seen so far, both addressed in these plans and also in terms of the actual steps that employers are taking to deal with what's coming down the line. The first one is predominantly in relation to kind of limiting the number of people that come back into the office and also limiting face-to-face interactions. So the, the reduction of numbers in the office, I think, will largely be done by homeworking, whether that's having everyone in the office work from home or just uh, kind of staggering it so that some work from home while others come into the office. Employers are also looking at staggering start and finish times uh, for the day. As part of these plans, we've seen some pretty detailed protocols in relation to how meetings are managed. So whether, first of all, the meeting is actually necessary at all, are there any other methods that the, that the, the people, the, the employees can use to carry out the meeting? Um, how many people should attend the meeting? We've seen sort of a maximum of five usually applied to those who actually turn up to the meeting the layout of the meeting, ensuring that there's appropriate social distancing measures put in place, and then how long the meeting should last. So restrictions around, you know, it lasting anywhere longer than it absolutely needs to, to last for. We've also seen employers put into these plans and also just generally look to update their guidelines on business travel, both in and, and out of Ireland. And obviously that's going to be heavily influenced by the government guidelines in relation to that sort of issue. But what we've seen some employers do is is advise and I would say probably more encourage employees to prioritize individual travel and avoid public transport where possible. And obviously that's not something that you can compel an employee to do, but because a lot of employees will have a, a real problem with that, but it is something that I think is a, is a prudent piece of guidance that we're, and that's the sort of thing that we're seeing in relation to those types of issues where employers are taking a pragmatic approach to things. The obvious one as well is just ensuring that employees have clear guidance on social distancing and and hygiene standards. So we've seen a lot of employers look at how they modify the the physical workspace, whether that's separating desks uh, or workstations or even sticking up protective screens. You know, employers already have been and will, of course, be required to provide adequate uh, supplies of appropriate and approved uh, cleaning equipment and materials for employees and and third-party visitors to use 
Interestingly as well, a lot of employers will obviously, you know, look to ensure that high touch surfaces and objects like phones and keyboards and desks and so on are, are regularly cleaned. But what we've seen is a move to try and modify high touch areas like doors with handles. And I saw online about two weeks ago, a contraption that people can now put on handles where they can open the doors using their elbows. So it's that sort of patience that employers are looking at. And then I guess for employers with sort of larger workspaces, you're looking at managing kind of common areas. So controlling footfall in particular areas, directing travel with floor markings. And then for people or for employers who have restaurant areas, maybe staggering lunch breaks, sort of start and finish times, and also maybe looking at removing self-service food counters and generally just placing restrictions on the use of things like lifts as well. And, you know, with any good plan, with any good protocol, it's important that the people who are responsible for implementing it get training. So I guess if it's management who are responsible for overseeing the implementation of it and the people, you know, are doing things as they should be, then they get sufficient training. And indeed, you know, employees could be trained on what's required of them in relation to social distancing and hygiene protocols. The extent that anyone has to be disciplined will then, all I can say is that, you know, an employer should take a a pragmatic approach, but I think more importantly, a consistent approach to how it deals with disciplinary matters. Just then turning to a couple of other kind of issues that we're seeing certainly more recently as well is uh, the obligation on an employer to put in place screening protocols because a lot of employers, particularly in my experience in the tech sectors and the pharma sectors are looking at things like temperature checks. And at the moment, an employer is not legally obliged to use those sorts of facilities but to the extent that you know an employer is looking at it well then you know they do give rise to overlapping issues across uh, employment and data protection so they are things that need to be considered in 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 quite a bit of detail but a lot of employers are certainly considering using those types of uh, facilities the other one then is the use of personal protective equipment i think a lot of employers at the moment are trying to figure out whether or not they require employees to use things like masks and gloves the government hasn't provided any kind of guidance as to whether it will require employers to use PPE. We would have thought that they won't do that because there's obviously a huge demand and strain on the use of PPE um, in, in medical settings. And to ask every employer in Ireland to maybe use those sorts of things would just probably be impossible from a, a practical perspective. But mm. nonetheless, employers should be thinking about employees in high-risk positions and who might have access or exposure to the public to start thinking about using those. And then just lastly, one of the things that probably we don't want to talk about too much is the fact that, you know, those plans, the protocols that are put in place and the forward thinking that employers are doing needs to take into account the fact that further restrictions might be imposed by the government. That might be for a prolonged period like it was before, or it might be intermittently. So it's prudent to ensure that any plans that you're putting in place preempt that basically so that you can put in place effective measures both safely and quickly to deal with any potential issues arising from the recurrence of the, of the virus. One question, Russell, I just want to follow up with you on, given the measures that employers are going to have to take to get ready to return to work, you can see how an employee might say, I'm just comfortable that the employer has done enough and I'm refusing to come back to work. And there are new EU guidelines on the return to work issues as of last Friday, but I, I don't know if that, obviously that's not going to go so far as to how an employer addresses that. How do you think an Irish employer should deal with that scenario? Yeah, I think that's going to be a fairly common one, I think, for a whole host of reasons. And I suppose the starting point from a legal perspective is that if somebody doesn't want to come to work and refuses to when they can work, Mm -hmm. then I suppose technically the employer can withhold pay and 
you know, the, they can also institute disciplinary proceedings against the individual. But I guess the current uh, climate, that particular kind of black and white analysis is probably not all that useful because I think really what an employer will need to do is just take each particular case on its own kind of merits and listen to the employee and particularly the reasons why they're saying they can't come to, to work. Because I think, you know, there will be people who will be ill who can't come to work. There will be people yeah. who don't want to come to work because they've got an underlying medical condition, anxiety, depression, and they don't want to exacerbate that by coming back into the workplace. And then there's some who might just be really used to working from home and, and they actually quite like the fact that, you know, that's an, that's an opportunity for them and they'd like to continue mm-hmm. that. So I guess, you know, HR practitioners will need to just preempt the various different requests that come from people. Uh, and I would have thought that an employer can push back on an employee's request to just not come to the workplace where there's no code reasonable grounds for the employee taking that position. Okay. So it just remains for me at this point to thank Russell, Susan and Denise and thank everybody for participating in today's discussion. I wish you all a good end of the week and hopefully you all stay safe and well and thank you again for your time. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.